Matt here um, has some really good stuff here on this episode, episode three of Labor, our podcast. This one was with Joe Mino and took place in Chicago at City Lit Books on August 3rd. It was a gorgeous day in Chicago and lovely audience, about 25, 30 people came out, very attentive and interested in what was going on. We had a great conversation with Joe and... Uh, things were just fantastic so really excited about this episode and let me tell you about Joe. Joe is an author based in Chicago. He's put out books on Akashic uh, and also Punk Planet books when they were still around and I believe he has five books out. Um, Tender's Hellfire, uh, How the Hula Girl Sings, Hairstyles of the Damned which is a Chicago Tribune book of the year. Bluebirds used to croon in the choir, a short story collection that's really beautifully put together, um, and was winner of the Society of Midland Authors Fiction Prize. Uh, the Boy Detective Fails, a Kirkus Booklist and Chicago Tribune Book of the Year. Demons in the Spring, a collection of short stories, finalist for the 2008 Story Prize, and also a Kirkus Reviews Best Book of the Year. And then The Great Perhaps a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice, and a winner of the Great Lakes Book Award for Fiction. Joe is a totally cool, affable guy. He also teaches at Columbia College in Chicago, of which he's also an alum. And as I said, this was a great event. I'm excited to play this one for you all. So uh, here we go, us and Joe Mino live at City Lit, City Lit Books in Chicago on August 3rd, 2013. Yeah. I really hope not. <laughs> God, we missed that comment on the recording. Gallagher was, has not been one yet. This is like the best party in someone's front room. Ever. Yeah. Alright, I'm just going to hold it in my lap. That's the way it's going to be. You can put it here. Alright, yeah, yeah, I guess we have an extra chair. You guys will be interviewed. Well, and I should say, yeah, everybody's welcome to join in the conversation and ask questions and everything else, but we're the Caribbean, we're from Washington, D.C., as Michael said, and um, we've started doing this podcast called Labor, which is about making things and about working and also balancing different elements of your life. We were just talking before we started about your kids, you have young kids, Joe, um, and... Not on purpose. Not on purpose. <laughs> well, hey, that's entirely possible. No, no, no. Um, and, uh, you know... Anything, <laughs> I have, that's the running gag with these, we're like, we'll edit that out, don't worry. Um, 15, I have a 15-year-old and almost a 13-year-old, and, and uh, Michael has a, a, a serious job, I have a serious job, Dave has a serious job. Cats. And, and three cats. <laughs> Four, no, no, the, no three, three, two of the foster cat. And then Dave has a young, <laughs> a, young uh, a young son, a little over a year old at home. Um, and it's about balancing these things and finding time, and... and um, in addition to just in general, like, how do you make things and why? Because it's not easy at this stage of our lives. Right. Like, we're not, we've been doing this since we were young, but we're not young guys anymore. And this we're feels dealing- like an intervention. 
Does it really? Yeah, he's like, listen, you're getting older. Okay. No, I'm just joking. Joe, we all love you very much. <laughs> Intervention for whom? I mean, yes. it could be for anybody in this room. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that, that's kind of the general gist of what we do. And, um, Can we give Joe and Mike? Does that work? Yeah, yeah, please pull that down. I meant to do that, actually. We'll edit this out. Um, but yeah, this might be the best part. So you know, yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, so Joe, you're you're um, you teach full time. I do. Okay. At Columbia College, right? right and, and you're an alum of Columbia as I well. I did. I went to grad school there, and, and I loved the program. I felt like you know you talk about this thing about work, and I love that idea of, of a whole podcast or whole idea of conversations about artists making work because in the end, that's the thing that makes you. Um, most happy, you know, for, for me, it's not like getting the book published or reviews or, I love all those things, but I think I'm most happy when I'm making stuff, you know, I really enjoy the part where you make stuff, um, and, and I feel lucky, because sometimes students I work with or other writers or other artists that I know, it's, it's a real struggle, and, and for me, that's, that's kind of the part where I feel, um, uh, the greatest sense of satisfaction because then once you put it out in the world and reviews and sales and all those things get into it you have a very different relationship for me it's it's just like being a kid you know i, I was really lucky my my grandparents had this place in, in in rural indiana and i'd go walk around in the woods for hours like my my grandfather was this this crazy croatian guy and he gave me like a compass and a knife. <laughs> it's like, all right, hand that. And for like, you know, four or five hours, I just wandered around. Just randomly. And just that, that feeling of um, being lost, but without being afraid, afraid of being lost, is real. Is really pleasurable. And that's exactly what I feel when I'm working. You know, when you're working on a project. That's an awesome analogy. I love that. Thanks. And it makes me think of yeah. I'm a teacher as well, so I'm off in the summer, and I get to work on this stuff exclusively. And that moment when you realize you're you're in that zone, yeah, where it's not just pleasure and it's not just the labor of work, but it's somewhere in between. It's yeah. just perfect, you right? Know, you're right. Full traction, and it's a great thing. And having that deadline, you know, I, again, I talk about this with some of my students. Like, if you could just write one song for the rest of your life, and on, on some level that seems like, oh, what a gift! How, how what a great pleasure that would be. For me, that'd be really terrifying. Because there's something really critical about having a deadline where you're forced to, to make some choices. So knowing you have like three months, we're going to tour, or three months, we're going to make this record, or you have three months for me, like, I know I have this short story I have to write in three months and, and get it done. It's, it, it forces me to, to make choices. George um, Orwell had this, this quote that um, the absence of boundary of boundaries is the enemy of art. And, and I really believe that idea that having some constraint and whether it's length like you guys have to make this thing happen within three minutes you have to make a song happen or you have 300 pages or you have three months having those kind of constraints are really really helpful mm -hmm. or 140 characters or whatever yeah i mean, I mean that's fine yeah, exactly right. i mean right. and, and you see something like twitter or you know haiku or whatever and, and because of that constraint someone's able to to um use that limitation and find and come up with something brilliant. So or eight tracks or eight, whatever, whatever it, you know, is, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And you just think I think of my favorite records or my favorite pieces of art or my favorite films and, and there's always you can almost always observe that sense of constraint and you're like, how did this person do this in this thing? And so there's that kind of marvel 
that happens when an artist sets those constraints and then somehow overcomes them in an interesting way. Well, and you have to almost create them for yourself. That's kind of what I was talking about at the beginning of this, too, where, you know, yeah. I guess if I'd had my absolute choice um, when I was 22 years old, I would have been like, I'm going to go in a band, I'm just going to, that's all I'm going to do is tour and we're just going to be in a band. Right. But the best thing that ever happened to me, and I think probably all of us creatively, was like, no, we got married, we had kids, and not I had to have each a other, but yeah. Not yeah. each other. Um, but we had to have Feels jobs like to, yeah. you know, uh, to make a living. And right. it, it, we're so much more productive as a result of that. I mean, Michael has a very serious job, and he comes home and, at night and forces himself to, to do these things. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was responding to serious job. I was like, mm. well, it's serious whether you like you it know. or not. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah, if you take the law seriously. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, well, we've worked, I think we've often worked under the. Under Michael's a cop. That's right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, That's like the craziest lawyer commercial ever. If you, you take, take the, the law seriously, seriously, don't call me. Take, yeah. 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 If that's your thing. Yeah, if you uh, take the law seriously. Um, actually, the good commercial would be like if you take the law. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so um, sort of, uh, I think uh, no, we've worked, we've operated under that under under that many constraints for for a long time, and I uh, I think at the point in my life we've talked about this that I actually have the discipline and I'm grown up enough to actually if if I could just write music and play music all the time that I would actually get a lot done, but it took me years to really reach the point where I thought of that I would have wasted a lot of time, and so working made me um, really efficient. Best best grades I ever got in law school were uh, Earl Band, toured a lot. And I was, you know, I went through the roof. My GPA went through the roof because I was just so organized mm. out of pure terror, but I was organized. <laughs> and, um, and I, you know, and I was, it was a great semester for me. And, and, I, and I learned that in, 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 in taking the rest of life seriously that I needed to make the time. I also needed to be disciplined. When I get home from work, I don't always feel like going into the basement and writing right. or recording or editing or whatever. But I do it because I do love it, but I doesn't mean it's fun. It's not right. always fun. Oh, it must be fun. What a great outlet. It's not an outlet. It's an obsession. It's what I do, you know? Right. I have a job as a lawyer so I can do this. That's what I that's what I do. But it's it's and I remind myself of that. And it's it's that's a big part of I think it, it makes us hungrier. I think hungry artists, I don't mean starving, I mean hungry in terms of just wanting to reach right, people right. and do great work, are the best artists. I, I think that the reason that a lot of times, you know, this is music, it's been a habit of literature where, where, where great musicians and they become enormously famous and then they kind of stagnate, not because they got stupid, it's just because the, the affirmation they get, they right. have limited, unlimited resources, and it's just tough to rouse that right. mm -hmm. whatever that is so that's one of the things and then of course you're not having the access the resources to we can't make like the, the new Daft Punk record which they made it probably cost them six figures to make yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean and it's one of the things I have a problem with with it it's too much it's just too much it's like there's some good things on it but it's like that's just and you got Nile Rodgers to play rhythm guitar and you know it's like <laughs> and then we spared no expense making this record and it's like that's kind of cool for the first listen and then after a while it's just like <sighs> yeah, there's there's very few like there's there's very few for me at least like paintings or films or plays or books where they're like we had all this money 
and and here it is, you know. That, and, and to me, that's symptomatic. You see this, you know, every summer when when like the the blockbusters come right. out, and they're like, listen, there's a dinosaur, and then there's an asteroid, and there's a robot, all in the same movie. And you're like, yeah. What's the know, name of that movie? I want to see dinosaur, that. robot, asteroid. Oh, I love that. Good one. Sounds awesome. But but yeah. that's it. It's rare, you know. It's rare that you're like, oh, that that the money. And it, it's it's funny to hear you say that because it, you know. My wife or my girlfriend at the time, we were so, so poor for so long, and we came up with all these interesting ways to eat ramen. Like, let's put popcorn in it. You know? <laughs> like, let's do this. And there was days where it's like there's ramen in like an old box of potato pancake mix, and you're like, mm, is there a way we can make this work? Right, right. You know, or like, and her dad had for some reason gotten us this gigantic jar of um, dill pickles from Costco and it lasted us a good like year and a half but it was literally like oh you can go in the cupboard where there's those two items or there's always pickles you know like, <laughs> yeah. like okay and you're kind of eating them and crying as you eat them. Uh, but that idea that like oh if I only had unlimited resources like if I only had a million dollars then I can make this this great thing and it actually turns out just like you know you guys are both saying it actually turns out to be this opposite thing that because you don't have that money or because you don't have that support like you know my my parents didn't pay for me to go to college or right. didn't support me afterwards then then it forces you to to make choices to forces you to to make brain. stuff you know to think. to be to be hungry in a way that like um i feel like other artists if they know they have the the safety um of finances to support them you know whether it's daft punk or or uh, Michael Brockheimer or whoever, you know that you can solve this with money, it almost always comes off as this, this horribly artificial, um, uh, it's almost always lacks that, that kind of sense of inspiration or humanity. You said hunger. I, I really believe that. And it happens all the time mm -hmm. with writers where they write this great book and they get this acclaim and then it kind of freezes them in time. Where then they think they have to do that thing over and over. Well, who are you writing for at that point? Right, right. Because then you start writing to please these these different critics. Or, so, or an audience you think right, wants right. Like, well, they in. like that last one, so we better do that yeah. that thing again. So I think that that hunger, and you guys do this a lot. You have different sounding songs. You're there's this song that kind of goes in this direction, or this song, and, and to me, those are the artists, whether they're filmmakers or writers or certainly musicians those are the artists that have always been really inspirational to me they do this thing and that's interesting and then they move on to this thing and and that's interesting and, and they don't feel limited by their successes conceptually i mean i i can dig all that uh and agree with all that uh you know we just recorded our, our upcoming record so it's very fresh in my mind the process uh beyond the constraints of of having to work you know 40 hours a week to to support myself and, and, and my family, uh, I don't think the amount of money that I have ever really came into play. I, I don't think my contributions to the record would sound any different if I <laughs> yeah. if my salary was five times yeah, you know right. like what it is. Yeah. So on a nuts and bolts level, I, I don't think money, having it or not having it, really came into play. Right. I mean, it, would you would your books be different if you made they, I mean, my books, uh, you know, they twice would. as much money For as, sure. as you make? I mean, my, my, there, there's a whole um, genre of literature about really unhappy rich people. 
Genuinely, genuinely. You wouldn't be rich if you made twice as much money <laughs> as, as you make. Oh, you don't so, know. No. Well, that's I, I, fair no, enough. No, no, but uh, no, I, I think I, you, know, I you, you either. It, it, for me as a writer, like I end up writing about um, jobs that I had, or places that I've lived, or places that I go visit. And if I, if I did have like unlimited resources. And I can see this too, because there are writers. There are really some really amazingly talented writers who do end up writing about the problems of being privileged, and and and, and a lot of that has to do with the, you know their resources or where they who you know who their parents happen to be sure. or wh- what college you know they they happen to go to. Um, I I think. Um, That's I, all relative, yeah, of course, yeah, though. Right. We're, but, we're all incredibly privileged right, no, by, okay. by most measures. Yeah, for sure. I say that not sure. to be a bummer, but no, uh, no, no, it's people true. make great art with a lot less money it's than, true. than we have. <laughs> but, I, I, you know, I, I feel like it, it's hard. Uh, the, the way I've experienced in my life, like people who've come into money, it, it hasn't changed their character. It's brought out facets that were already there. So if, if they were an a-hole... Like booze. Like, yeah, exactly, like exactly. You're like, you know, then they became a real committed a-hole. And like, if, if they were... Well, it takes commitment. Yeah, you know. <laughs> if, I label this explicit, like by the way, on iTunes, so swear away. All right, go right ahead. So, <laughs> and, so I, I imagine it, if you, if, you, if, if, if you had unlimited resources, it, it would probably affect certain things like um, it would probably remove that sense of hunger you know I don't write a oh, book I, I agree with you I don't, I don't I agree with write you a book to try to, to make money but if, if you never had to, to worry about money then like what kind of art would you make you know would sure, you make this totally that. abstract fantastic thing or, you know in some ways because you're um, constrained by your finances you you do have to ask questions about like people going to actually be interested in this thing or are people going to um, want to interact or not because you're trying to make something that's going to make money but this this question of commerce or finance is almost always no matter how like genuine you try to be it always comes into it once you, you start actually putting like a ISBN number or like sure. a barcode sure. on, on the thing let's take this uh, sure. time due to time constraints let's sure Love to have you do your reading. Okay, sure. now. And Dave's going to do Dave's some, uh, some gonna soundscapes behind it. So, well, so in, in mm-hmm. kind of in a tangential way, the, the, the conversations we're having about people and, and their relationship to art start sure, is, is, is connected to um, this last book I wrote. It's called Office Girl. And it's set here in Chicago. And it's about two young people in their um, 20s who are both. Uh, trying to make art. Um, while they make art, they also uh, work at this kind of dead end um, telemarketing office where they they sell Muzak to like dentists and, and medical facilities, and they meet and decide to start their own art movement. So I'll just read a, a couple pages from from the book. On Tuesday night around 5 p.m., the two of them O'Deal and Jack are in the break room just before their shift starts. And they're staring at each other suspiciously, Odile peering from behind a diet soda pop can, eating a peanut butter sandwich with the crust cut off, and Jack begins to talk first, saying, So, are, are you working tonight? Duh, she says, smiling with a mouthful of bread. Oh, I guess so, he says. We all know what's going on here. 
She says, you don't have to be weird about it. What's going on here? He asks. I'm not even going to dignify that with a response, she says. Wait, what do you think's going on here, he asks, but she doesn't say a word, only keeps eating her sandwich and smiling. For some reason, he's encouraged by her non-answer. Maybe, maybe she's interested in me. Are you going to order something to eat tonight, he asks, on your break? Yes. Well, well, let me know. I'll order something, too. Fine, she says, still glancing over the top of him, over the top of her soda pop can. But I'm paying for my own. We're not going steady or anything. Oh, okay. He replies, a little disappointed at what she said, but not disappointed enough to stop from being interested. Because immediately he catches himself staring at her. He catches himself trying to memorize the shape of her eyes and wide face. He watches her get up and leave the break room. And then he asks the cloud of air where she's just been sitting, why it's so lovely. And then he punches in on his time card machine and walks over to his cubicle. And Odile's already answering the phone. And he looks down and sees she's taken off her shoes, which is sort of weird. And then when she finishes her call, she leans back in her chair and looks at him, not saying anything at first. She runs her fingers through her hair, arranging her bangs. And then she announces right off, we are not going to have sex. I want to tell you that right now. I don't have sex with people I don't know. It makes it too weird too soon. I wasn't even thinking that, he says. Why would you even say that? He asks, blushing, feeling the heat of his face reaching down his neck. I know that look you have. I think I know what you're thinking. Well, we're both adults, he says. I'm only here to work. I won't bother you or anything. Fine, she says. Great. Great, he repeats. Exactly, he says. Exactly, <laughs> she says. Right, exactly. And who needs all this weirdness, she asks. Both of their noses twitch as they peer at each other. She tugs on the corner of her gray cardigan sweater and looks as disappointed as he does, then disappears back behind the gray cubicle wall. And then, at 1 a.m. in the elevator, on the way down to the lobby, Jack zips up his coat. Odile fits her white hat over her head and buttons up her green parka. She turns to him and says, Do you want to get some coffee somewhere? And Jack says, Yes faster than he has ever said any single word before. And they find their two bicycles parked beside each other, and both of them unlock their bikes and ride side by side through the bleary downtown snow. So that book, Office Girl, is really about these two young people uh, who, who meet and they decide to start their own art movement, um, which lasts just three weeks. Um, so the two of them start this art movement, and they do these different um, pieces of art, and then at the end, the, the art movement ends as, as their relationship does. And, and um, so much of that book kind of came out of the questions I had when I was in my 20s about making art, and uh, the kind of inspiration I felt from meeting other artists, meeting folks who, who played music or painted, and had really a profound... Um, influence on me who then disappeared or moved to another city and that kind of questioning that as a young person whether you're an artist or not that 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 you feel at that that time in your life but especially as an artist when you're trying to pay your bills or trying to resolve these questions of your love life or figure out exactly who who you are i i love that phrase and i wish i had uh, i could capture it from memory but um the loveliness of the air that she left but what was the exact phrasing oh something about like the she asked, he asked the cloud of air where she'd just been sitting why it's so freaking lovely 
And just that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that feeling <laughs> of um, having just met someone that you're really excited by, and um, you being afraid that you like them more than they like you. Right. Where you talk to their shadow after they leave the room, or you know, it's and, vulnerability. Yeah, yeah, that that kind of timidity that I felt like in my twenties that I possessed before you are confident or you know you feel like you have a sense of yourself and there was just so many people you know when I was in my 20s people that I worked with or met for literally you had a conversation and someone introduced you to the films of Francois Truffaut and you'd never heard of like Truffaut and they're like oh yeah you should watch that and you do and you're like oh my gosh there's whole world you didn't even know existed and there's something about being in your 20s where maybe your like frontal lobe hasn't finished entirely hard <laughs> exactly where you're like a little more permeable especially for guys yeah for real right <laughs> and where you someone like says oh here's here's Still this band you know or here's this film or here's this piece of art and you take it in um in a very different way you know uh you take it in so deeply in yourself and it has this real profound impact so there's those films that i watched when i was like 24 but you know jean-luc godard or truffaut or those like records that that i heard you know half japanese or like you know like, how does this thing exist you know or um the velvet underground are these bands that that make you think about the real real possibilities of art you know that they're not famous enough that you hear their music when you go to the supermarket, but it's so intimate and, and profound and specific that it really leaves this, this lasting impact. And in some ways, that's exactly all I'm trying to do with, with my writing, is make a book that has the feeling of a half-Japanese record or like a Francois Truffaut movie, right? Where you know in a million years, you know, uh, uh, everyone in the country is not going to that piece of art but there's going to be some people you know people are willing to come out on a Saturday afternoon lovely and, Saturday yeah afternoon. right you know so that that idea of like I want to make something that has that same kind of impact that's exactly that's what the, motivates us because it goes back to what you're saying about it's not always fun Right. I mean, you think like, oh, this should be really fun. It's actually reminds me of the Woody Allen um, movie when he was touring Europe with his jazz yeah. band. In theory. And he's like, in theory, this should be fun, he said. Um, <laughs> you know, like he's playing backstage. Because he was a, he was a nervous on, wreck. So, and yeah. it should be, yeah. And there's moments when it is te terribly fun right. and you're glad right. he did it, but you're compelled. Yes. You're compelled. You know, have to do it. I mean, I can't imagine not. Right, and and we make things for the same reason. You're gonna well, play. Yeah, uh, we're yeah gonna I play think we should. More. I think we should. We I think we we are compelled to play more to more play more songs. Okay. We're gonna play more songs, then we're gonna go back to okay. to to you know talking. I'm gonna, and I'm gonna move over here because it's just weird. <laughs> yeah, like, like yeah, that is. You're right. Like, if we're playing, you're like. <laughs> I didn't take my. You want to do jobs work? Yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll explain it. I'll explain it. How to explain? Um, this is another new song. Um, this is another new song, and it's uh, it's called Jobsworth. And it's you know, look, no matter. I think many of us, maybe all of us, fancy ourselves and either and probably are to some extent um, anti-authoritarian, dislike authority. I'm no different. But I think even when you are. Um, Sometimes you have to deal with authority, and, and, and when authority does right, it makes you feel good no matter who you are. It may be a boss, maybe a parent, maybe. and when they do the right thing, and when they earn your trust, it feels good no matter how anti-authority you are. 
And what invariably happens is somebody who you trust in authority at some point lets you down. And that's what this song is about. It's called Jobsworth. Without getting into detail and getting myself in trouble, I, I would just I would say you know it's 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 a basically about um, someone who you're counting on who you admire and uh, showing some showing showing another side. And of course the the, the, the I, I rely on you to to, to, okay. to do the the explanation of the term jobs. Work. Well, I mean, it's just a, I brought it back to these guys. I know Mike just read it in a book, but whatever. In terms of the backstory. <laughs> My cousins in Wales, uh, we were out at a pub, and uh, one of them used the word Jobsworth, and it was a word I'd never heard before. Uh, and they explained to me what it was, and, and I've since come to illustrate it as an, an over-officious train conductor. <laughs> Someone who uh, makes a great show of punching your ticket and enforcing all of the persnickety rules. Uh, you know, your comeback to that you would turn to your mate and say, uh, well, he's getting his job's worth out of that, isn't he? <laughs> uh, and then you would know that that person has a job's worth.
All right, so I've been thinking about a quote. <laughs> Why you mentioned way, the house now? You know, before that, actually, because I love this quote, but it's, um, we talked about fun and how it's not always fun by any means. And um, Jamie Stewart from Shushu, the band, I don't know if you know Shushu, but he's a great coach. His fun is for assholes. <laughs> um, and I don't entirely agree with that, but like, I think there's something to be said for that, right? Like, because fun, as we traditionally know it in our culture, is like, yeah, I, I agree, a lot of that stuff is for assholes, for sure. But um, <laughs> um, this is from the guy who had to take his 12-year-old daughter to the big-time Rush Victoria Justice show like a week and a half ago, so I speak with authority. Um, that's off. We you turn that on? It's in the second channel. Sorry. Um, I don't know where I was going with that, but I just wanted to say it. Um, so how... Well, go ahead. You know, that we talked earlier about that idea when you were younger, starting off as an artist, that what you would do would be easy and make a lot of money, and then after a couple of years of this, you realize that th there's a struggle and, and that it's not so much with, with finances or with acceptance. It's really you like doing this thing every day. You know, this, this idea that, okay, if you, you're going to be in a band, you're going to like, you're going to like write music and tour, or if you're going to be a writer, you're going to sit down and write every day, or if you're going to be a painter, you're going to paint every day. Like it's really, really easy to get excited about one thing for a couple days. It's really, really not fun to work, Matt. you know, yeah, well, like, <laughs> right. it's not fun to, to work on a novel for, for two years, you know, five or six days a week. There's definitely days where you're like, man, it's nice outside, or, you know, a lot of times it's not, because this is Chicago, you know, so it's like, yeah, well, so one of the reasons, good place to it's actually your great, okay. any kind of artist is a great place to be, because you're like, well, I could go and you're like, no, I couldn't go outside. <laughs> right. I'll do some work now, you know. So I, I actually find it really advantageous. But that idea that that somehow you're always supposed to be inspired or moved by the muses or whatever, that it's really a job. And, and I actually found um, a kind of freedom in approaching it like that. Like, this is your job. And whether you feel magically inspired or not, you sit down, you do the work every day. And sometimes what you write is just garbage. But it's still just the practice and discipline of it that does actually make it a little easier. But it, there's a lot of times where it's not a ton of fun, you know. And touring can be amazingly um, uh, pleasurable. It can give you so much satisfaction. Or it can be really, really difficult. You have no idea. Yeah, I do. No I do. Um, I got fleas in Cincinnati once. You know, so like, <laughs> I know. You know, like, that, there's uh -huh. definitely times where... You, yeah, you drive six hours and you have the first people. person to say that. You know? Oh, it's lo yeah. it can be so lonely. It no, can and be so especially lonely. when you, you're married and, and you have kids and and yeah, it's, it, so there's those things that you kind of maybe romanticize when you started your your practice as, as an artist. That then, as you kind of move along, you you realize like, well, this is not the reason I did it, you know. So it's really for me, it goes back to that practice. Like that's. I'm trying to find ways to enjoy that, even when it's it doesn't feel magical or special or you know it, it feels like this is a job, right. and, and and finding a kind of um, a freedom in in that. Well, it also like in my day job, I know I'm a middle school English teacher, and I mean every year since my first year at my current job, it was going to be my last year. Like yeah. <laughs> I remember being interviewed and being like, "How long are you here?" And we're here for five years, and I thought, of course, like a long way away from here. But you know, years have gone years, and it's been ten years now. And every year I get better at it, and I think, "Man, I'm glad I stuck around. I'm getting yeah. pretty good at this, yeah. right?" So it kind of talk. It kind of speaks to that 
that you know sometimes we don't know what's best for us you know because it makes me better in all respects like right. it's better I get better at that I get better at other things too um, well, and, and I'll just say one more thing like it is practice like you know you guys probably started playing when you were like teenagers I'm guessing or badly but right. yeah no but you well, yeah, that's started, I'm not right. saying I mean no. I didn't say well but like because no. Starting means something. That idea, you know? though, that like a, after doing this thing yeah, for 15 or, yeah. or 20 years, then you do actually get better. You do actually, and, and for some reason, a lot of, of writers, not so much musicians, but a lot of writers like have this idea that, like, well, I can, I can think myself into being a great writer. Like, if I, if I go to this coffee shop and, and like, put, like, Dostoevsky down next to the laptop and, like, put a beret on and be like, oh, I need a monocle, too, and you put that on. And, like, and, and then, really, it's, it's pure practice, or at least for me it is. It's just practice, it's, and it's just like any discipline, you know, uh, whether you're, you're learning uh, uh, saxophone or learning how to paint or whatever, the more hours you put into in front of that, that canvas or the screen or whatever, the easier it actually becomes. It is not, for me at least, an intellectual exercise. It's literally about putting your hands on the mm-hmm. keyboard for a couple hours every day. Yep. It does It does get easier. And I wanted to change gears a little bit because we've talked about... Um, what I was going to say was that um, it's interesting because you... you don't rely on this exclusively, being an author, to make right, your right. living. We don't rely on this at all, um, and which is freeing in its own right. Yeah. But there are people I know who have actually taken what they do and not making a lot of money, but are relying on it uh, solely. And actually, one of the people would be horrified that I'm bringing this up, but uh, who is uh, I'm inspired by is actually right back there, Nick Butcher, who runs a design let's, shop. Let's, let's clap it up for Nick Butcher. Clap, clap it up. Just got back from Switzerland, in fact. But he runs a, uh, I guess, a studio, a small print shop called Sonenzimmer, and um, has managed to do both. So it's clearly, you know, the case that you can you can have it both ways. Yes, yes. But I recall a young Nick Butcher <laughs> skating at the Montrose skate park, and you know, he was he's like painting houses at the time or mm-hmm. or whatever, and that like, and there's absolutely no shame. Like to to me that. Nick is an incredibly, and I don't want to make him feel embarrassed, but he's one of my favorite artists. You know? He just is. Like, Same. He has been for a, a long time. I like time. him okay. Yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a terrible person. Yeah, well. But no, no he's an amazing person. And, and, but, but one of the things that I learned about making art is like, you know, when we, we had Punk Planet, Nick had a studio down in, in, on the first floor, and it was just filled with like dozens and dozens and dozens of paintings paintings and and that's why for some reason I get along a little easier with musicians and and painters and and photographers because for them it's just about making stuff you know and and there's less of a sense of pretension involved you just make this painting you move on to the next painting and and that lesson of like it's really this old almost like renaissance style approach to to making art where you just like you're in the studio and, and you and you you do the work, and that's the kind of way I try to approach my writing. Mm-hmm. You're just this is this is the work, you know. And some of this stuff is not great, and it, some of this stuff is a little bit better. And here's where something finally feels like it's getting together, you know. So to make one great painting, you know, you're gonna probably make five or six or seven, ten kind of mediocre ones. And as long as 
you understand that this is this is a habit of practice. Right, right. Is that isn't that partially though because songs and and, and paintings and and I, well certainly songs and paintings at least arguably you could do those more quickly and if something's bad you just do another one or if something's good and you do another one whereas a novel you know it's you devote a year and a half to do it and you realize and as you will if it's your first it's not very good and the other thing about painting and I think music and, and I Suzanne Vega said something that always sort of stuck with me about songwriting the great thing about writing a song is when you're done then you can play it <laughs> and that is right. really one of the greatest yeah, right. pleasures and I think with a painting yeah once you're done then you can just stand back and admire it, it a book you know a novel even a story doesn't have that immediate gratification thing immediate gratification keeps you going back and what you right. do in that process is you get better at what you're doing yeah but it, it's actually funny because I grew up playing in, in bands that before I ever wanted to be a writer, you know, I played in these like awful metal and like punk bands, and so I always had this built-in idea that like you make something, and then you put it out there, and then you move on, and so that that process of like sharing it with an audience, whether you have like a gallery show and you put mm -hmm. your painting, or like you guys make a song and then play it, that to me is such a fundamental part, and that's one of the reasons I feel like painting, modern painting in 2013, and music in 2013 has. Um, a relevance that a lot of literature just completely lacks, right? Because to be a band, you have to get up and play in front of people. To be a painter, you have to put up paintings for people to come look at. But, but to, to be a writer, you can be pretty removed. You can be at a real distance from, from an audience. Yeah. And, and for me, that's the only way I know, like if I write a short story, the only way I know it's done is by like reading it to an audience. And even like while I'm working on a, on a novel, the only way that I can figure out how it's working is by reading like different parts of it while I'm working on it. So for me that like sense of the audience as a real um, tool for developing material, it's, it's huge. And it's something I, you know, I talk about with, with, with other writers or, or writing students is, is getting them in the habit of like you make this thing and then you share it and then you take what works and move on to, right. to kind of the next thing. I will, I just, anybody here who's read Joe's work. I think he just called you a tool. I just, yes. uh, our, our audience are tools as well. Yeah, well. Okay. Uh, does anybody have a question or a statement or um, notes? <laughs> yeah, any, any, any contemplation at all? I, I want to open it up because we're sitting here talking and I, I, I find it interesting, but I'm in the middle of the conversation and I don't know if that's my own hubris. Uh, does anybody have any... And you don't have to talk in the microphone if you don't want to. That's that's an optional thing. Yes? Yeah, I do. Um, something that you said really caught my attention that um, it's opposite of what you hear a lot when you're at that college age, high school age, and you're like, well, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with my life? And you hear people say, well, if you find something you love and you do it every day, it's not work. And yeah, what you right. said was total opposite of that. <laughs> That's funny. That totally yeah. my I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I disabused <laughs> you. It's like wonderful idea. But I think maybe it's just from my converse. And, and not that's not. To, and I, I want to be totally clear. I feel so, um, so completely grateful to, to be able to, 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 to make work and to, to share it. And, and, and so it's, it's, it's not that I don't feel totally lucky. I feel like there's many more talented authors out there who deserve just as much if not more recognition but the, but at the same time when you're actually doing the work like it's like a wednesday situation where it's like i always wednesday. use tuesday as my like, like down day in like, february hey, man, like i'm working yeah. on this, this oh. novel and 
you're working on it, and you're like, you can get really excited about the first 50 pages, but after like 50 pages, you're like, okay, this is the middle. And the right. middle's a drag. It's the beginning's not, fun. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, hey, yeah, look at this, you know? And, and then you're like, oh, and it's a lot like a long-term relationship where you're like, you know, the first couple of weeks, you're like, this is awesome, yeah, and you're like, oh, you have that weird thing on your back. <laughs> okay, how are we going to make this work? And you're like, okay, and that's literally like, and, and so moving through that part, it is not, it's, it's, it's love in, in a really, in a really um, complex way. Like when you genuinely love someone, it, it's, it's like work. It's like for real. It takes effort and it's not like always sunshine and, and butter. Sometimes it is, but there's Wednesdays in there where you're just like, man, I, I had no idea your feet were that big. Like that's, that's weird. And like, and so there's that negotiation between you have this, this, this idea or image or impression or this expectation, and here's the actual reality. And so, so much of your time as an artist is navigating that, like, here's this amazing thing, but to get there, I have to do all these kind of not-so-fun fun things. You know, like, recording a record, is it's really tedious. It's just tedious, you know, and, like, or making a film, is working on a play is really, it's not, it's really tedious, really lots and lots of repetition. And, and same with, like, writing a a, a book and, and so it's not that it's not love it's just it's you know what it is it's like adult love <laughs> it's the difference between like teenage love you know where you're like you're like oh I like you for two weeks um, and then I'm out versus like oh I, I really you know I'm, I love you and let's you know stay together or whatever so just a different it is love but it's just I think a more complete one in the interest of time because I know the store is not going to be open oh, okay um, well, in the interest of time, let's uh, do this maybe. Um, well, right. yeah. Well, now I'm changing gears. I don't know. Um, yes, you are. Well, okay. Any other questions or comments, and then I'll move on to what I was thinking. Anybody? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I have right. to go home to dinner. You have to go home to dinner. Okay. Thank you for no, like I appreciate you <laughs> coming out because you you were here earlier and just kind of got interested and stuck yeah, around. It's it awesome. Super cool. And my yeah. wife's cooking and uh, awesome. <laughs> we'll all be over in like yeah, we'll be yeah yeah. yeah. Text me when it's ready. Yeah. <laughs> right here we do have. Let the record show the man, the man in the hand. I think I'm barely going to reach, but yeah, there you go. You're good. Um, so I wanted to go back to something you said about taking walks in the woods with a compass uh -huh. and a knife. Um, and this is a slight sort of change of gears, but do you, I mean, some of you have kids, do you worry with, like, technology and smartphones and Nintendo and stuff that that, like, sense of imagination and being able to entertain yourself and, like, do that mental work of just walking and thinking and talking to yourself and being creative, like, that that is in any way compromised? I, I'm probably yes. the, the worst <laughs> person to talk to because my, my, my wife is an educator. She works with kids who have learning disabilities and um, and then I've, I've been teaching for about 14 or 15 years our house is kind of like the 1970s like our our kids are going to be sorely ill-prepared they're like <laughs> like they literally like our friends come over with iPhones and they're like these people are from the future you know and they're like phones from like four years ago and like we we made a concerted effort you know when we had when we had our, our daughter and then with our, our son to, to to make choices about like because for me just like I said like wandering around in the woods 
had such a profound impact on my life. Like, I don't know if I'd be a writer if I didn't have some of those seminal experiences. And so, where literally, you're just like make-believe, you know? You're just making, you know, like pick a stick up and it's a sword or, and, you know, and, 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 and so we wanted to, to make sure our, our kids had that opportunity. So, you know, we, I mean, we listen to vinyl records in our house, and my poor kids, like, n know the major jazz trumpeters of the 20th century. Like, they're, they're, they're going to be wallflowers. That's all they need That's to know. That's right. I mean, they're, <laughs> we're training, like, two future, like, librarians, or, you know, like, that. And that's fine, because I, I think librarians are less likely to get pregnant when they're 14 or 15. So, like, that's my, that's kind of my, my angle on Statistics don't bear that out. So, I think as a parent, especially now, you do have, like, it's either you're going to be weird and say, like, we're going to pretend, like, that 1990 never happened, or you, you have to, like, let it in and see how that affects affects your kids. Wow, it's just uh, like I, your house. Yeah, right. I'm the exact opposite of all of that. Not in philosophy. I totally agree with you. I wish my kids were that way, but we have opened the floodgates and it just happened. We talked about this, or Dave and I were talking about this, like, before you have kids, you have these, like, a lot of people have this parenting philosophy, like, this right, is how we're right. going to raise our kids, but you haven't met your kids yet, so you don't really know right. if that's going to work. You haven't met yourself yet as a parent. No, you haven't right, met right, yourself right. either. Um, so, you know, I've made all sorts of compromises as a parent. I would have never, ever, ever right. would have done it, and I think I've done it We've done it to a fault. I think my kids are, you know, we have to force the reading time. We have to do all those things. They've, you know, they have iPhones, et cetera. So I'm not super proud of that. It's the way it's worked out, but we're working on it. Hasn't so. every generation, though, and I'm not a parent, so I say this, maybe this is it. Hasn't every generation said that about the current generation? If it was cable TV or TV or, is always, there's always distractions from solitude and distractions from quiet time and doing things yeah, yeah, uh, you know. Yes, yes, and no. I mean, kids in the '70s played with trucks, like kids in the '50s played with trucks. I mean, I, I think the digital revolution had a much deeper yeah. impact on than TV. Can I see? Well, ma part? maybe not TV. Because our parents grew up with radio a lot of them. True. Right? So, no, no, it's a fair point. Yeah. Well, and what I can say as an educator, is but I stand school. by my point as well, <laughs> as, a, as you often do. As a uh, middle school educator, uh, there was a sea change in the past ten years where the way kids are built and the way they right. learn, the way their brains are structured, it changed entirely. I mean, entirely. Well, just with processing information. You know, sure. And, you know, the, the, the biggest lesson as, a, as a, a parent is just in how often you are forced to compromise. And, and so w whether it's about technology or some, some other thing, I mean, that's all you do. All I, I mean, it's really humble. It's actually the most, like, humbling experience because all you realize is how wrong you are as a human all day long. And, yes. and then you do it in front of an audience, like your kids. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're, yeah, no. And you're like, yeah, I don't know. I thought Pluto, you know, was a planet. <laughs> and they was, have a book, and it says it's not anymore. And you're like, oh. And then they just look at you like, if he doesn't know that Pluto's not a planet, like, he doesn't even know what time dinner is going to be. You know? I don't want him... I don't want him putting me to bed, you know, or whatever like that. So, I mean, that's all, that's, you know, like, that's all that happens all day long. I, it's true, and I described it in a different way a little bit, actually, yesterday to Dave. I was like, the moment for me was when Big Star's song 13, I went from identifying with the, you know, the narrator, the kid, to being the the dad, <laughs> you know, who argues yeah, right. about painted black or whatever. Yeah, right. Can you say more about how the kids have changed in 10 years? 
Um, it is how they process information. It's uh, they're not using um, words to entertain themselves, um, and that includes what we talked about: independent play and and um, negotiating and mediating with their peers. It's all done interactively. Not all of it, and this is not every kid in the world, but it's a lot of them. Um, and you just don't see the language skills you used to see. They have other skills that they've developed that have been developed out of proportion to everything else. Um, it's not all bad, and it's just the way it is. But it's that you have to change strategies as a teacher. I mean, it's just not, which I was very comfortable doing because I have the same mindset as they do, really. But um, <laughs> so, yeah, is that, is that satisfactory? Okay. Um, why don't we go ahead and pull, play a final one and. Um, because we, I know we're, we're actually nearing your normal closing time, and I know it's a beautiful night. We still have some chance to get outside and stuff. But uh, um, I wanted to thank Teresa from City yes, Lydia for having us. It's been awesome. And thank you so much for coming out on such a beautiful night. It's such a great store. Please, we have stuff for sale. Um, Joe's stuff is for sale all over there, T-shirts, CDs, and, and of course, a few other things. <laughs> There's even a few other things we look around. You know, we were just speaking uh, before we, we started this evening, and, and if, if you just spend a, a few moments, like after the, the guys are done with, with their song, and kind of wander around, pick something up, um, the, there are not too many bookstores like this in, in the city, let alone the country, and right. these are really kind of, for me, these sacred kind of spaces where you can actually hear some music and hear a conversation you don't have those occasions in a lot of other kinds of places and so although i'd love to think that they would somehow subsist on their own they subsist by by purchases so if, you know if you're like me you said something today you probably shouldn't have said to somebody right like you said something and so i always think like what better apology than a book where someone like thought ahead of time of what they were supposed to say and they like wrote it down so like all you have to do is just like go around pick up a book and and then and then buy it and, and then it'll be a, a great thank you to to the city lit for 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 hosting us or pick up a moleskin and write your own yeah and then there you go even better even better so thank you again and uh let's let's give a, a big round of applause for uh the the it's not Caribbean. It's whatever you want. Caribbean. Caribbean. I call it Caribbean now. Just uh, it's Caribbean. Know. Now. Yeah, whatever. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> okay. So, you know, Dave? Dave? Sure, yeah. That's, uh, that's a good song for that. No, no, it's like this. I got to tune up, so. Oh. Yeah, yeah, extend. I'll do that. I'm, of course, in the wrong tuning for this song, so if you indulge. This is the title track on the record, actually. Called Moon Sickness. And like a lot of our stuff, it's based on the Michael Fred. Was the author was was it Philip K? Well, I mean, yeah, I'm a I I love Philip K. Dick and it and it's I love the the, the, the idea of a, a a improbable future being mundane. You know, all these things that and it just it's it's I was reading I don't even know which what novel it was because I read a bunch recently, but it just and it just inspired me to write about it. A doctor who, with just bad bits of manner on, you know, on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of songs about that, you know, <laughs> but yeah. Oh my God, he kept repeating all through the exam. You haven't hung your diplomas, he said, I just smiled back.
So that's episode three of Labor, uh, and hope you enjoyed it with Joe Mino from City Lit Books in the Logan Square area of Chicago on Saturday, August 3rd, 2013. Had a really good time. Thanks for listen, listening. Um, the songs you heard are coming um, off of our new record, which is coming out November 12th, 2013. You heard Jobs Worth and then Moon Sickness. Um, go to laborthepodcast.com for your various Labor the Podcast related needs. And of course, uh, subscribe on iTunes. And also, you can go to thecaribbeanasaband.com for uh, more about us, sign up for a mailing list, uh, go to our store, etc. So thanks very much, and this is Matt signing off from Episode 3.